0: In the spirit of that hymn, and especially that last verse, I would read to you verses 11 to 14 in the 13th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, 13th chapter of Romans, reading from verse 11 to the end of the chapter, and that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at end. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Well, that's one of the great and one of the most eloquent passages in the whole of the Bible. But we are looking at it tonight because it constitutes a new subsection in this thirteenth chapter of this epistle to the Romans, which we are studying together. It's introduced, as you notice, by the words, and that. And it's important that we should realize the significance of those words. They can be translated, if you like, by moreover. The words introduce an additional thought. That's, that's their import, that's their meaning. He's been saying certain things, and that, he says, in addition to, on top of this. In other words, he brings in an additional circumstance in order to heighten the force of what he's just been saying. Now, a similar use of this uh, expression translated, and that, will help us perhaps to gather its exact meaning. Uh, You've got it in the 8th verse of the 2nd chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. You're familiar with this. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. He's adding to the statement. He's taking it further. He's lifting it higher. Now, it's exactly the same sort of significance that it has uh, here in this 11th verse that we are now looking at. In other words, what we've got here in this passage at the end of this chapter, is a further reason for doing all the things he has been calling us to do from the beginning of the twelfth chapter. There was the great division, the great turning point, as we saw in the whole epistle, where he moves from doctrine to application, and he's been telling us a number of things, issuing a number of exhortations. And now, having done that, we've been seeing, as we've been studying, verses 8, 9, and 10, that he's summing it all up. And we've considered the first argument which he has used in order to encourage us to uh, fulfill all these commandments and injunctions, and that is this whole question of love as the fulfillment of the law. He's, He's made that perfectly clear. If you do these things, he says, you're really fulfilling the law. All that he's been saying can be summed up in the phrase, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And love uh, doesn't work any ill to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That was his first reason. But now having said that, he introduces us to this second reason. Here's the second big argument that he employs in order to enforce what he's been instructing us in and appealing to us to do. It is, as I say, one of these great moving statements, forever, of course, to be associated with the final conversion of that great man, Saint Augustine of Hippo. You remember the story, how he was in his trouble, in his agony, undergoing conviction by the Holy Spirit, seeing things fairly clearly with his mind, but the flesh was holding him to a life of sin, He'd been going through this process for some time and there he was, torn backwards and forwards and in utter misery. There is no more miserable state than the state of being under conviction of sin without seeing the way of release. And there he tells us he was in the garden one afternoon and he suddenly heard the voice of a child saying, Toller legge, rise and read. Going into the house he picked up the book and this is what he read. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And in a flash, the whole glory of the gospel and the way of salvation became clear to him. It was the great turning point in the life of Saint Augustine. That in a sense doesn't add to the scriptures, but we are all in the flesh. And these associations sometimes are of very great value to us. A passage that has been used like that in the conversion of such a giant is obviously worthy of our unusual attention. You think of the same kind of thing in the case of Martin Luther, that just shall live by faith. I remember emphasizing that when we were doing the first chapter of this great epistle. Well, here it is, and for all these reasons, it's a passage that should move every Christian to the very depth of his being. It's great literature. It's magnificent literature. It is, as I say, one of the most moving and eloquent passages that you'll find anywhere in the whole range of the scripture. But, as I've often had to point out, there is a special danger always about these great eloquent moving passages. And that is that we become so carried away by the eloquence that we miss the meaning. I've said this several times In this study of the epistle to the Romans, I remember having to say it at the end of chapter 11, and I remember saying it several times in the 8th chapter, these great moving passages, these unusually outstanding eloquence, they have this danger that we get such pleasure in the kind of aesthetic sense that we fail to stop and to examine exactly what they're saying to us. So we must be very careful to examine this and to make sure that we know exactly what the Great Apostle is saying. Uh, And what he's doing here is, of course, is to give us this great final reason in this section for paying heed to his instructions and his injunctions. Now, uh, much as I dislike in many ways having to do this, we've got to analyze it. You you know, if you really want to appreciate a great bit of music, it's a good thing to analyze it. Start with its general effect. Let it do that general something to you. But don't imagine you've got all out of that. That's sometimes more or less an emotional response. Take it then and analyze it. Get to understand it. Then play the whole again, and you'll get much more out of it. It's exactly the same with a passage of Scripture such as this. We're not going to destroy it. We're not laying kind of sacrilegious hands upon something that is so beautiful, and venturing to dissect it. That's never true with scripture. The more you dissect it, but on condition that you remember the whole after you've done your dissection, the more you will always get out of it. And so we've got to analyze this great statement, and it falls very naturally into two sections, into two parts. Or if you like, there are two elements in this great statement. What are they? Well, here they are, nothing new about it, doctrine and practice. Argument, application. Reasons, exhortation. That's, that's what you've got here. And we must work this out. He starts, you see, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. You've got the two elements there immediately. You've got the statement, knowing the time, and the exhortation, time to awake out of sleep. Our salvation is nearer than when we believe. That statement, that's doctrine. The night is far spent, that's the same. The day is at end, that's doctrine. Let us therefore. Here's your application. And so you can divide up the whole statement into these two sections, these two aspects, these two phases. Now, I want to consider this with you. And I say again, it is tremendously important that we should do so. I uh, suggest furthermore that the test of our true Christianity, a test of the life of Christ in us, is whether we enjoy doing this. Now, I always feel that a portion of scripture like this can be compared to food in many ways. There are some people, you know, they bolt their food and they never enjoy it. They get something out of it, of course, but oh, what they miss? They just swallow it all. They bolt their food. Of course, they're getting their calories in a sense, but they're missing the enjoyment. They don't masticate it. They don't flavor it fully. And it's aroma. Many people are like that with the scriptures. Rush through the passage. They've done it, they think. Or what they've missed. Now I am proposing to chew this with you. And to keep it in our mouths a good time before we swallow it. It goes down to the stomach. Don't miss the pleasure of flavoring the scripture. Masticate it thoroughly. Break it up. And you'll find that there are things there that you never imagine. So let's proceed like this. Immediately, it seems to me, looking at the passage in general, we find the apostle is putting certain basic and fundamental principles to our consideration. What are they? Well, here's the first. We're reminded once more of the New Testament way and manner of dealing with the whole question of conduct. That's what he's dealing with. But he does it in this Typical characteristic New Testament manner. What is that? Well, in the first place, the New Testament never deals with conduct per se, or in and of itself. Never. You see, this is important for this reason. That's where it's in a class on its own, as distinct from moral systems. The New Testament never, I defy you to give me a single example, Never deals with conduct and behavior as such, alone, in and of itself. The second division of this uh, New Testament way of dealing with conduct I'd put in this form that we are reminded here again that we do not live in the way that the Apostle has been indicating to us in order to become Christian or in order to be Christian. We are to live like this because we are Christian. And what a world of thought there is there. This is the modern heresy. We are back again fighting the old fight of the Reformation. Justification by faith as over against justification by works. And the doctrine, popular doctrine today, is the doctrine of justification by works in various forms. They don't use the terms, but that's what they're teaching. You make yourself a Christian by doing certain things. It's the exact opposite of the New Testament teaching. You do not live this life in order to make yourself or to become a Christian. You live like this because you are a Christian. Or to put it in a third form, I can put it like this. Our conduct as Christians is always based upon our position. It's always based upon what is true of us. In other words, you can't understand this teaching concerning conduct unless you're perfectly clear about our position, about what we are. For the behavior of the conduct is an expression of what we are and is therefore based upon it. And so, my fourth and last principle under this heading is this. That our conduct and behavior is based always and must be based always upon our understanding of that position. You notice how he puts it. And that knowing the time. Now, if he can't assume this knowledge, his argument falls to the ground. So he's assuming, knowing, you do know. This is, We've seen this so many times. You remember Romans 8.18. We know that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. You've got the same thing at the end of that chapter. I am persuaded. It's the same thing. It's this knowledge. And here it comes back once more. Now, conduct, therefore, the teaching of conduct, the view of conduct, the way of dealing with conduct in the New Testament, is always one that is based upon our understanding of our position as Christians, knowing that. Very well, there's our first deduction. So I come to the second. We are reminded here once more of the vital importance of doctrine, of this truth that he's presupposing. Now, the apostle, he always does the same thing. That's what's so wonderful about the scripture. You find him invariably dealing with faith and works together. He shows how doctrine and practical daily living, are always intimately associated and inextricably intermixed. Here's a perfect example of it. You see, we are, as it were, here in this section of the epistle, when he is supposed to have finished with doctrine, and he's dealing now with practical application. But you see, doctrine keeps on coming in. It's like King Charles's head. You can't keep it out. It keeps on coming in all along. And here is this great statement, you've got these two things mixed up together, You pass from one to the other and back to the first. There they are, always together. Faith and practice, faith and works. Doctrine and the practical carrying out of it. And what this passage, therefore, reminds us of once more is this. That these two things cannot be separated if we really have got hold of the truth. It reminds us also that they must never be separated. I want to put this in this way to you. To realize the interrelationship between faith and works, doctrine and practice, is the best way of avoiding the two greatest dangers always confronting the Christian. What are they? Well, they are the dangers on the one hand of antinomianism and on the other hand of legalism. What do I mean by antinomianism? What is meant by antinomianism, and it's dealt with so frequently in the scripture, is this. That a man feels that he's got nothing to do with the law. That he's therefore unconcerned about his conduct and his practice and his behavior. He doesn't recognize law. In a sense, he is against law, anti the law. Antinomianism. That's the very meaning of the term. And it's a condition that has worked havoc so many times in the long history of the church. And I have a feeling that it's doing so at this present time. Now, we're bound to take this subject up, not only because of the passage that is immediately before us, but also that we may wind off our consideration of the previous subsection, verses 8, 9, and 10, and show their relationship to this the final subsection of the whole passage and the whole movement of thought at this particular point. He's already been dealing with love and law, and he's still doing that. Now, let's look first of all at the danger of antinomianism. How does that arise? How does this terrible danger of turning our backs upon and finishing, as it were, with the law, How does this arise? Well, it arises in many ways, and it's amazing how subtle it all is. I'm not of necessity putting them in the order of importance, but these are the ways in which we all become liable to this terrible condition of antinomianism. The first is that we become intellectualists and develop a kind of intellectualism and are concerned only about intellectual formulation and understanding of the doctrines of the Scripture. In other words, one of the great dangers confronting every true Christian is a danger of living on and relying upon orthodoxy alone. You see how the danger arises. Orthodoxy is absolutely essential. That's why I've recommended the two books uh, of R.L. Dabney. That's why I'm constantly recommending any work by any great theologian, such as the Hodges or Warfield or Calvin or any one of them. Doctrine is absolutely vital and essential. But if you say, as long as I'm clear about the doctrine and have got my head packed with doctrine, all is well, and I'm not worried about anything else, you're guilty of antinomianism. And this has, as I say, wrought havoc so often in the history of the church. That men have been so keen on contending for orthodoxy that they've forgotten the way in which they were doing it, and were unconcerned about that, and forgot their lives and their living, so that all they were claiming to believe was being blatantly, flagrantly contradicted by their life and their conduct. They could state the doctrine to you perfectly, and they talked about justification and sanctification and so on, but there was no evidence of sanctification. And they did grievous harm to the doctrine. I think I may have told you before, I have known men display their knowledge of doctrine and defend orthodoxy, even when they were not sober. Taken up with this aspect, and drinking too much, this is one way in which it comes, a kind of intellectualism, the purely theoretical, academic approach to the truth, concern about orthodoxy alone. Then another way, and it follows, it's a kind of division of what I've just been saying. Antinomianism has always been a peculiar danger to those who are known as Calvinists. It's the charge that's always been brought against them, and of course there has always been a certain amount of substance to the charge. Not always as much as the antagonists have made out. You always get that on both sides. But it is an especial danger to a man who holds the great doctrines of predestination and election, and especially the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints. Now, you remember, we worked that out in doing uh, chapter 8. And this is the peculiar temptation to the man who holds the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints. The devil, you see, can come as an angel of light, and he does come to such a man. And he says to him, well, you are saved. Nothing can ever shake that. Nothing can ever make any difference. Nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor life, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, it doesn't matter very much what you do. Though you fall into grievous sin, it's all right. Now, that is a true statement. But if you trade on it, you're guilty of antinomianism. If you take advantage of it, if you turn that into an excuse for laxity and for license, you are guilty of this terrible thing known as antinomianism. And of course, it is something that has manifested itself many, many times amongst such people who hold to what are called the doctrines of grace. You see, my friends, there is nothing safe in this Christian life. There is always the devil. So you're never safe. You've always got to watch and pray. And this is one of the great dangers of allowing him even to turn a great doctrine like the final perseverance of the saints into an excuse for license and for sin. But this is not confined. Antinomianism is not confined to those who are Calvinists. Those who are at the extreme opposite pole are equally liable to it. And if I were asked to give my opinion as to the greatest cause of antinomianism at the present time, I wouldn't hesitate to say that it is believism. What is this? Well, it's taken many forms. It was once known as antinomianism. It's a teaching which says you don't worry even about your feelings. You don't worry about anything except that you you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus that's the one thing they say that matters if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead thou shalt be saved they use in exactly the same way misuse in the same way 1 Corinthians twelve three. no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the spirit I say that that puts me right you are familiar with the technique Sandimanianism, believism. This teaching which says, don't worry whether you feel anything or not. Don't worry, worry whether you are conscious of a change in your life or not. If you say that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for your sins, you are saved. Your declaration of that is the thing that saves you. Your confession, your testimony, you are asserting this. That's believism. It's something we are told a man can do whenever he likes He can decide to do this whenever he likes. And there are hundreds who do this. And this decision has made them Christians. But they go on living the same old life. I have to see such people quite frequently. Not members of this church, but others who have got into trouble because of this. I had a most interesting interview with a young man not long since, who came for this very reason. He suddenly realized that there was no correspondence with what he claimed to be and what he was. He said, There is no change in me. And he began to see that there was something wrong because there wasn't a change. In other words, he realized he was guilty of antinomianism. Another way in which it takes another form which can take is this, this believism. It's the teaching which has sometimes been known as the take it by faith teaching. Take it by faith. Don't worry about your feelings, this. Take it by faith. Now this is the matter of sanctification. And this has been a very prevalent teaching. And people say, well, I took it. And sometimes they're even instructed to do this. They're given the teaching, and then they're told, well, now, do you believe that? They say, yes. Well, now, they say, thank God for it, because you've got it. You've taken it by faith. But they say, I don't feel any different. They say, don't worry about that. You've taken it by faith. You've got it. Thank God for it. But the life doesn't show that they've got it. There is no difference. And this leads to great misery. But... It is actually a form of antinomianism. They are persuading themselves that they have got this sanctification, whereas in actual fact they've not got it. They're not paying any attention to their, to their works. They're told not to examine themselves. They're told that to examine themselves is sinful. It is a denial of the taking it by faith. You mustn't examine yourself. You mustn't look to yourself. You look entirely to the Lord. It's all in him, and you've taken it all. Therefore, you've got it all, and you thank him. You've got it all. So they're not allowed to look at their lives. They're not allowed to do what the apostle has been telling us to do. That is antinomianism. And there is a great deal of this antinomianism at the present time. There are people who claim to have received it by faith who are guilty of snobbery, of pettiness and jealousy and envy, and indeed, increasingly, unfortunately, even of sins belonging to the flesh, drink, and various others. Antinomianism is a most subtle thing, and it can come at us from any direction or any theological quarter whatsoever. And another very prolific cause of this is what is known, of course, as mysticism. What's this? Well, I'm using the term in a very general sense to cover all concentration upon inward moods and feelings and states. You, you know this. You're familiar with this. There are people who say nothing matters except what one feels, experiences, sensations. And that's everything to them. They never think of anything else. They're always seeking this, some mystic experience. And they're negligent about their lives. They can be bad-tempered, they can be spiteful, and many others. They're cultivating this inward feeling and state. And their lives bear no evidence of their relationship to God or their union with him, which is the thing that they're most concerned about. Mysticism has often been a cause of antinomianism in that way. It is always a very dangerous thing to put the whole of your attention upon your feelings and your moods and states. And another one, and this is becoming, it seems to me, a more and more common manifestation of this danger of antinomianism. It is an over-concern with and preoccupation with phenomena. That, of course, was the trouble in the church at Corinth. They were interested, and indeed consumed, by an interest in the gifts of the Spirit. And the apostle has to rebuke them. Because while they were all obsessed with this question of gifts, they were neglecting ordinary common decency. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 at the beginning. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. They were so concerned about the gifts, and so concentrating on the gifts, that they were tolerating this vile form of immorality, and it was taking many other forms, getting drunk before they came to the communion service. You can read about all that in chapters ten and eleven of this first epistle to the Corinthians. Now that's that was the whole trouble with that church. All the attention was put upon the gifts. And they were utterly negligent about their life and conduct and behavior, boasting of these things and denying the very truth as they were doing so, having the form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And there are other ways in which this terrible danger of antinomianism can and does show itself. Well now, all that you see is corrective by this great passage that we're looking at together. It was to save these people in Rome from that very kind of thing that the apostle has been speaking as he has been from the beginning of chapter 12. And here he's now driving it home with this great appeal of his. There's one danger, antinomianism. But then you see there's the other danger on the other extreme. And that is the danger of legalism. I needn't stay with this. We really were touching upon that as we were doing the previous subsection. People become legalists very often because they realize the danger of antinomianism and swing so far to the other extreme that unconsciously they've become legalists. they put themselves back into the law again. They say doctrine doesn't matter at all. Experience doesn't matter at all. Nothing matters but practical daily life and living. Now that is legalism. And we've considered it together many times as we've been going through this great epistle. So you've got these twin dangers, one there, one here, antinomianism, legalism. They're both wrong. They're both very dangerous. And if we listen to the teaching of this great apostle, we shall always be saved from both these dangers. How does he do it? Well, he does it, I say, in this way, that he never deals with these things separately. He always puts them together. He never deals with conduct and behavior without providing us with reasons and with motives. There then is another general lesson that we learn from this subsection. But there is another one. And this is the practical application of this teaching to our daily life and living. How are we to live this Christian life? Well, once more, you see, he gives us the typical New Testament teaching. Let me give you the negatives first. The apostle never teaches, I defy you to contradict what I'm saying and to give me evidence. The, the apostle never teaches what is called the victorious life teaching, or the victorious living teaching. Never. Never. The apostle never teaches what is known as the overcoming teaching. You're familiar with these uh, teachings. These are teachings which come to us and tell us that we are miserable and unhappy because we are failing. We are falling to certain particular sins. And therefore they go on to say to us, if you want to be happy, if you want to be delivered, if you want to live this victorious life, This overcoming life. This is what you've got to do. And then they tell us that this is something which uh, I can obtain as an experience. I can have it there and then. Do I want to have this victorious life? That's the question. Do I will this? Do I really want it? Here's the great crisis. They bring me to this crisis. They say, because if you do, you can have it here and now. You can get this complete deliverance in one experience and you will then be more than conqueror. You will live the victorious life. Now you're familiar with that kind of teaching. It's had a great world since about 1873. And I'm just asserting that you never find it here. Indeed you find the exact opposite here. On what grounds do I say that? Well, for these reasons. That teaching, you notice, always starts with man. Always starts with me. They say, are you unhappy? Are you in trouble? Are you failing? Is something getting you down? Now they say, listen, we've got the very thing you want. That's the way in which the teaching is couched and put to us. But that is wrong. That's not biblical. The New Testament never starts with man's happiness. It always starts with God and his holiness. And if we don't do that, we're inevitably going astray. We must never start with ourselves. Never. We must always start with God. And with the holiness of God. Christianity is not a system to make us happy. Nothing can be more important than this. What is salvation? What's the object of salvation? A week today, I say, is Good Friday. And Easter Sunday. What's the meaning of the cross? What's the meaning of the resurrection? Why did the Son of God ever come into this world? Why did he die on the cross? Why did he endure all he did? Why did he conquer death and the grave and rise? What's the object of salvation? Why has God sent him to do all this? And you know there's only one answer to that. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. It was not done primarily to make us happy. Of course you get great joy out of it, but you mustn't say it was done to make us happy. The moment you do that, your emphasis has gone wrong. The relative positions are wrong. You're reducing it to the level of the cults. It's not meant to make us happy primarily. It is meant to reconcile us with God. Indeed, it goes out of its way to say things like this to us. That because we are Christians, we may very well have a worse time in this world than people who are not Christians. And to you it is given on the behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. And Christian people have sometimes had to suffer more than anybody. So you see, it isn't something that is designed just to make us all feel happy and give us release and ease. The primary object is to reconcile us to God is to vindicate God and his holiness. It is to bring us to God. We must always put that in the first position. So you see, uh, this other teaching, it, it, it presents us with the wrong motive. My motive should be not so much to be happy as to know that I'm one of God's people and enjoy the privilege of being such a person. This is the New Testament teaching. We've got it here, we've got it everywhere else. Its method of teaching, sanctification, is precisely what we've got in this great passage that is before us. It doesn't say to me, now come along, do you want this? All you've got to do is to surrender and believe, take it by faith, you've got it. You see, it's the exact opposite of that. What is this? Well, what I've got here is this. I've got an argument. I've got a series of statements. He says, you know certain things in the light of those. It's an argument, a statement that's got to be worked out. It is a truth which has got to be put into action and into practice. So I would put it in this form to you. That the New Testament way of teaching and presenting sanctification is one that always starts with the objective truth and not my subjective condition. That's the thing we've got to grasp. Start with the great truth and then apply it to yourself. Now, the apostle, you see, assumes that we've got this knowledge, knowing that, he says, and that knowing that He's got nothing to say unless we have this knowledge. What does he mean by this knowledge? Well, he means all that he's been saying, if you like, in the first eight or the first eleven chapters. In other words, the apostle's teaching is this. Unless you've got a general idea and comprehension of the way of salvation and the plan and the purpose of salvation, you will never really be able to live this life. Because all the motives presented are based upon these great doctrines, these aspects of truth. So if we haven't got a grasp of these aspects of truth, we can't be sanctified. You don't receive it in a package, in an experience. No, no, what he says is, now I know that you've got the grasp of the truth I've been laying down before you. Therefore, work this out. This is it, knowing that. And you see, this of necessity is a very urgent and a very vital matter. That's the way in which the New Testament deals with this whole matter of sanctification. Indeed, we've already seen this illustrated in a very interesting way and fascinating manner in the first ten verses of this very chapter. Did you notice the kind of gradation through which the Apostle took us in dealing with that whole question of the higher powers and our relationship to other people? His first argument with us was the argument of fear. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers. Why? Well, there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. All right. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. This is preaching sanctification. That's how Paul preaches sanctification. He says, you resist these powers, you'll put yourself under judgment. You'll get punished. He's bringing in the motive of fear. And he goes on repeating it. Rulers, he says, are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Well, if you don't want to be afraid, do that which is good. And thou shalt have praise of the same. He is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. This is not taking it by faith. This is not getting sanctification in an experience. He's reasoning with you. He says, look here, realize what you're doing. You've got to face God in the judgment. If thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now that's how Paul preaches sanctification. The fear motive. But he doesn't stop there. In the next verse, the fifth verse, he goes on. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath. That's the first one, But also, for conscience sake, and you remember we interpreted that as meaning this, that you don't live this good life merely because you're afraid of the judgment. You must use that argument, but then there is this further one. You've got an understanding. You've got an enlightened conscience. You know what is right and what God wills and what God expects of you. You've got an understanding. Well, very well, for that sake, for conscience sake, as it's put, live this good life. He's moved. From the level of fear to the level of conscience and reason and understanding. But then you remember, he took us to the top of the mountain. He sums up as he goes along, he says, for this cause pay ye tribute also for there God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Fear, conscience. He doesn't leave it at that. Finally, oh, no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. But you notice that the whole time he is reasoning. He is arguing. He is presenting his case. And he is putting it at different levels. In order that we see it may then proceed to put it into practice. And here, unfortunately, we must leave it at this for tonight. He comes to this great final argument that he uses in this section. What is this argument? Well, you can call it, if you like, the eschatological argument, the apocalyptic argument, the argument of the last times, the coming of the Son of God. You see, the apostle is incapable of dealing with the question of conduct and practice and behavior without bringing in all the great essential doctrines of this glorious way of salvation. That's the way, and it is the only way, in which we can ever grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and become truly sanctified. And following this way, you will avoid the twin dangers of antinomianism and legalism. You will be walking the way which he characterizes in his epistle to the Galatians, in these words, Hey, which worketh thy love. Well, God willing, when we resume on Friday, April the 7th, we'll go on considering this mighty, moving, eloquent statement of the great apostle. O Lord our God, we do again thank thee for the glory of thy word and the yet greater glory of thy way of salvation, and above all, thine own glory. O God, open our eyes to this. Deliver us from our morbid preoccupation. Deliver us from the pettinesses that consume us so much. Give us, we pray thee, a vision of thyself, of thy glory and of thy great and glorious purpose for us, thy people. Lord, open our eyes. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night, throughout the remainder of this our short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage, and until We shall see him as he is and be made like him in the glory. Amen.